So they really understand about duration of going twice as fast and twice as slow. And once they get uh, become more successful at this, we can put this on the board and not even name it, but they could figure out which one is twice as fast, twice as slow, and they could start to then read, but feel the uh, rhythmic patterns internally uh, before, before we're ready to label it. Yeah, it just makes sense to me. Um, I just wish everybody would do it this way. So. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Piano Sensei Way. I'm your host, Clinton Pratt, and I help you master the art of running a successful piano teaching studio. Today, I am super excited because we're going to be discussing, I think, my favorite topic related to music and teaching, Dalcro's Eurythmics. And some of you, if you've met me before, heard me before, I'm sure you've heard me talk about that, that I'm a Dalcros freak, I'm a Dalcrosian or whatever. But today we're going to sort of give you an intro and talk about this. And in order to help me, we've got a special guest, David Frico. So I'd like to welcome him. And David, um, thank you for being here. Just uh, briefly introduce yourself. Tell us um, where you live and what you teach. Thanks, Clinton. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm David Frigo. I live in central Ohio. Um, I started my career here at Ohio State and then traveled around to work at other universities and have recently retired from Penn State University and have moved back to Ohio. Oh, yes. I'm teaching. And so my area of expertise is Del Crozier Rhythmics, and I've been teaching at the university level uh, for many years and prior to that in elementary school. When did I first meet you? I think it was at the training. I think it's training in week. Yeah, yeah. Right. So David is a master teaching artist for American Eurythmic Society. And so he was one of the teachers when I was doing one of the trainings. So that's how we met. And we're fast friends. <laughs> <laughs> right. First, can you explain in simple terms what what is Dal Crow's Eurythmics? Yeah, it's always the, the elevator speech when somebody asks you, it's a complicated explanation, but I try to boil it down to that it's an approach to uh, learning and experiencing music um, kinesthetically. Um, and as well as you know, orally, we do that already, but it's an approach to, to experience all the elements of music kinesthetically. And so that could be anything from dynamics to uh, nuance, to phrasing, to rhythm, to uh, pitch. So it really is an all-encompassing um, approach. And it's one of the oldest approaches in the uh, music education system that is used uh, in the U.S. Yeah, okay. And how did you first hear about it or experience it? 
Sure. I had it as a child, but I didn't know it. It was music class. And um, I took it probably through grade five because I had the same same teacher. Then, um, you know, things change when you go into middle high school and then on to college. You know, I didn't really have much experience with it uh, until I think I was in my first or second year of teaching uh, elementary school in Toronto. And we had a, a teacher's in-service day, and the guest was Bob Abramson, who's now passed away, but really was known at the time as one of the top instructors in the field. And it was during that session, I just kept saying to myself, I've done this. I, I, I know what this is about. And after that, we had a discussion, and he actually knew my elementary music teacher, uh, and so I thought, well, that, that's kind of how it is. So I just jumped right in from there and then said, I've got to, to you know, learn about this and, and um, you know, become the best teacher I can for the students I was working with. Yeah, okay. So you had basically your music teacher when you were in school was trained in Dow Crows. And so it's not like... You, it, that's what it was called, like, oh, we're going to a Eurythmics class. You were just going to music, but the teacher used the, that philosophy. Right. And so, you know, being a young child, I didn't know the difference between one class or another. And and there's a, a bit of a culture of movement in there. And you were just expected, even from kindergarten, to start this uh, way. And it was a very large room with hardwood floors, and there was a piano in the uh, corner of the room. And we just we never sat down. There were no chairs. We just did everything uh, in the class. Yeah. Okay. So then when you started teaching music, were you, what were you teaching? Were you teaching general music class, um, private lessons, groups, what? All of that. Um, mm -hmm. I, so when I first started teaching, it was uh, general music in a French immersion school in Toronto. And um, I had a few, um, you know, pull out uh, classes that I would also teach uh, private piano and used the, the Eurythmics approach also with the private students, not just with the large classes. Yeah. So did you have piano lessons as a child? Yes. Yeah, I did. Um, and also um, concurrently, I had ballet uh, class. And so that started... Uh, well, the piano kind of superseded it eventually, but I um, uh, was doing both uh, ballet and piano. And then um, later in high school, I started playing for ballet, um, uh, ballet classes. Okay, yeah, I think and that would be interesting for our audience to know, because as you know, this is the piano sensei way and it's for piano teachers. So um, not that you have to be a piano teacher to be on the show, but that you are, you know, you are a pianist as well and learned piano and, and taught piano. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it, yeah, I want to tell a, a quick story too. My first exposure to Dalcros was, I think, 2006 at a Ohio Music Teachers Association state conference. And one of the sessions was a Eurythmic session. And I had no idea like what I was getting into. I just showed up like everybody else. But all of the chairs were gone. Like they were all against the wall. And there was this nice lady, you know, at the piano. And like there was barely any 
talking at first she just like started tapping this drum and walked to the beat and oh and we had to take off our shoes and socks and I'm like what is going on but it's really fun and yeah by the end of it I was totally blown away all these light bulbs went off in my head like this is great I can't even explain what we're doing but I feel like I'm a better musician already and I have all of these ideas for my students and how can I do more so I you know asked her afterwards and she told me of some you know different training workshops I could go to and then you know the rest is history I wonder if that was Terry Boyarski that you had no you know what it was Susan Chess oh Susan and I noticed she's gonna be at our American Rhythmic Society National Conference in October so I'm super excited because I haven't seen her since then that is wonderful Susan was um, my very last doctoral student that I had at Ohio State when I was uh, there oh okay wow oh my gosh small world yeah and I'm not sure when this episode is will be published so that conference might be over by then but <laughs> yeah anyway that's a uh, that's really cool yeah now David could you give us some key principles or philosophies that underlie the Eurythmics and how it differs from traditional music education. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to give comparisons to um, traditional music education because it's I, you know I've lived this new life for so long I almost forget what happens uh, uh, otherwise. But um, I'll give uh, start off by talking about time, space, and energy. It's one of the uh, facets that we don't often think about as piano educators, but it exists in in our environment. So time, of course, would be equivalent to tempo. I mean, the, whatever you're going to be doing, there's a, a tempo. The space uh, for the Delcros class is the distance between the beats. It's the distance that you're going to uh, to go through. It could even be the distance of the phrase. And the energy then is the uh, amount of force that we need to cover that distance. And all it's like a triangle. All of these lines have to connect. If one changes, that affects the other. So we think of uh, uh, the piano, we could think of uh, tempo, the speed that you're going to, to be going. Then we're thinking of space. And that could be between the notes, uh, within the phrase, however that is, and then energy. And with that, we can be thinking about uh, velocity, uh, key action, or it can be um, the energy that you are uh, applying to make this piece of music real uh, that you're going to do. Now, that might sound pretty heavy in philosophy, but time, space, and energy runs the runs the ship for us in, um, in your rhythmics. And we come back to it often when we're looking at, at doing a project. Here's an example. Let's say uh, you're with a partner, you're on the floor, and you're rolling a racquetball between you and your partner, and it has to roll at the precise time that it leaves one uh, the first person's hand at the first at the beat one and it's caught on the last beat and turned around so it'll roll again on the first beat so there's a time you know we've set that up and probably the instructor is tapping a drum to keep it going there's the space between the two people and then the energy to roll that ball precisely at the tempo that it can be caught by the other person at that uh, that beat. 
And then what happens? The tempo increases, which means you need more energy to roll the ball faster, or you decide to get further away from each other. So uh, the instructor is controlling time, but the two people rolling the ball back and forth are controlling space and energy. That was a lot, but I, I hope that helped. No, that's really good. And one of the great things, you know, about this philosophy is like it can be applied in so many ways and there can be a million different variations, right? So I'm already thinking in my mind like, oh yeah, and then you could stand up and do this or use this instead. But yeah, what you said was important with um, the energy and the space. So if the if the teacher changes the tempo, then um, so if they speed up, then you got to use more energy to roll the ball or you could move closer together. Right, right. 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 Or then if they slow down and then, oh, no, my ball is getting to you too soon, I can do it less energy or maybe we scoop back. Right. And so then it's interesting how that like, so what? Right. OK, so that's a fun little game. Mm -hmm. But then how does that how does that benefit the individual? Um, or the group now that they go to a piano or something, right? Sure. It's interesting. I When I taught class piano or even individual piano, we would do a lot of activities like this as we were preparing for a piece of music so that we'd want to make sure that we have the tempo within our body that we can control that tempo. One of the things often with younger children is they tend to speed up and they're you know unaware of their, of their tempo. So by doing an activity like this, and we call them games, they start to really internalize the tempo that they're going to be doing and then to figure out in gross motor movements how they're functioning and then take it down to the small motor movement, which is playing the piano. Right. Yes. I think that's very important is feeling it in the whole body or the bigger muscles. Um, yeah, it just makes sense to me. Um, I just wish everybody would do it this way. So. <laughs> um, yeah, because we all know, like, or we've had piano students, you know, who, I don't know, they can't keep the steady beat or like doing a, a well-paced retardando or something. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to just appeal to their intellect, you know, sitting there uh, as a teacher next to them, like, okay, no, but now count it this way or, you know, and do all these things just to try to, okay, count, you know, you know, you got to count or... <laughs> You know, imagine a imagination is good, but you know, imagine a ball bouncing and as it does, okay, that's good too. But if you can get them to actually experience it, right, with their whole body, so even like a role reversal, right? Like I'm sure you just where um, instead of trying to get them to play it, you play it and have them do something and right. then switch and they play it while you're doing it and they kind of see you do the motion or whatever. And so it's all connected. Yeah, it is. And it becomes more of a shared experience with the teacher. If you, as you just said that, you know, you're at the keyboard and the students moving or bouncing the ball or, you know, going through, the, and then it switches around. There's a sense of a shared experience in the, uh, in the studio. And I also love the fact that almost every activity, you know, that I've seen Dow cross teachers do is, is a game or it, can be thought of as a game right and so to engage kids you know let's play this game and so everything's a game they're having fun and they kind of don't realize that they're learning all of this stuff and getting the music you know in their body and they're going to be a better musician and play better and all this stuff and they're just playing a game 
Right. It's interesting that Emile Jacques Delcroze himself used to refer to these as games. And um, of course, there's no loser. Everybody's a winner. We all they all enjoy it. It's interesting, uh, Clinton, that um, if everybody is really focused and really involved in the game or, or the activity, uh, when it comes to an end, there's always a sense of joy, that there's a sense of, of completion and a, a bit of pride in themselves that they were able to do it because every activity that we do involves um, intense focus. Do you want to connect with other teachers in person? Do you want to learn new teaching strategies and explore outside the box approaches? Join us at the Creative Teaching Conference a radical retreat to recharge and reinvigorate your teaching. This unique conference was started by me and my two friends and colleagues, Christopher Oyle and Tony Parlapiano, back in the summer of 2022. All three of us had so many ideas we wanted to share, but instead of trying to get selected for an MTNA or NCKP conference, we created our own event. We each present a few workshops, but we also have guest presenters as well. Topics include improvisation, composition, student-led learning. You'll experience inspiring workshops on creative teaching strategies and creative performance ideas. Learn about different ways to structure lessons, such as online groups, memberships, and subscription models. We eat meals together and plan social time so you can connect with teachers from all over the country, forming new musical friendships that will last a lifetime. Mark your calendars for July 7 to 9, 2024 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Check out creativeteachingconference.com for more info. Maybe we should talk about who Dalcroze was and why, why he started this or how that all came about. Sure. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Uh, so <laughs> Emile Jacques Delcroze was a Swiss um, educator, musician, dancer, uh, and um, studied uh, the, you know, the normal conservatory method. This is back in the late 1800s, the normal conservatory method for his training uh, in piano and in, in dance. Um, and he was teaching at the Geneva Conservatory, um, teaching oral skills, which we all had in, in college, and uh, noticed that the students were technically correct, but there was no, how to say, musical style or nuance in what they did. Um, so really started to develop a sense of training of musicianship. Uh, through movement. And then this developed more and more into um, an approach. Uh, and it has to, I have to say, it's a, it's not a method in the sense where it's really prescriptive that you do this followed by this and this and this, every teacher will approach it differently in, in how they, how they do this. Um, but he developed this uh, approach um, and uh First off, it was not accepted widely in Geneva circles because it was, you know, really odd to have people wearing loose clothes and bare feet and, you know, moving around the, uh, the floor. Um, so he eventually started his own school in uh, Geneva. And uh, from there, it's just branched out. It's used now in theater, uh, training, improvisation for actors. It's used a lot in music therapy. Um, certainly in the studios, 
uh, and in um, music classrooms and not just elementary. I mean, I have seen this in high school choirs and, and uh, uh, bands are using some of this approach. So it really is wide ranging and used to develop, you know, musicianship in, in um, so many different ways. Yeah. And sometimes if I mention Dow Crow's Rhythmics to somebody and and I, I kind of just try to briefly explain like, well, you know, it's using the body and movement and they say, oh, yeah, I use that. You know, I have my students clap the beat <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, and yeah, not to insult those teachers or whatever, but it's it's a lot more than that. Right. It's not just like, oh, yeah, we move like here, let's mm -hmm. sway or, you know, that's right. It's it's like it's just there's way more to it right there right right it's, right. Uh, it, it's interesting I, I similar to you i was in a class uh, this was at a large conference at national conference and it was a movement session so i thought oh great i'm going to be going to this one and we got there and the person started by saying now you're all willows and i want you to be willows and i kept thinking i i don't know how to be a willow i, I don't know and so i you know i would try to do all this thing. really had she said i want you to sway to the beat or something and then provide us with an impetus to to go i think that would have helped me know a lot better i want to point out that you said you know it's not a specific method um, but more of a philosophy so then this question's probably moot, but is there a typical structure to a Dow Cross Rhythmics class or session? I would say each person has developed develops their structure in order to that. So yeah, I, the question's not moot. It, it's it's interesting um, that I always approach with a focus activity um, in uh, the group that I work with. And they, uh, one of them is a letter number activity that they're doing and they're focusing and they're trying to be thinking ahead of real time in order to get there. So that's a structure that I start with. And then I move to uh, go right away to discovering a tempo within yourself. For example, we, we all have an internal tempo and it shifts as we mature, but um, we look to try to establish that tempo. And that means turning off all the sounds of, you know, you hear an elevator music or you're always a, a bombarded by sound. This is now to go inside and, and just walk your tempo, just what you feel your tempo is. And then I'll have them pause. So they, they stop and see if they can feel their tempo in silence, in stillness, then to continue, then to start to go faster and or slower than your personal tempo. Um, but it's important to discover that sensation inside you, what your tempo is. So it doesn't always have to be externally provided. Uh, just a, a quick story here. A master student of mine wanted to do a, a Del Crow's study with grade two children. And so she decided she would uh, at the first, just to test the, the base uh, ground, she gave them a drum, sat on the floor, and they had to tap the drum at a steady beat. Well, the, it, the study went out the window because every child could tap at a steady beat if it was their steady beat, if it was their tempo. It was harder if you had them tap, let's say, 108 beats per minute because they had trouble following they'd sped speed up to their steady beat but in a, in a way i thought well that's telling because we know that everybody has their own steady beat yeah exactly and yeah i think that's important for teachers to realize 
when they think, oh, I have this student and they just can't keep a steady beat, you know. And I'm thinking, well, they can't keep a steady beat because they can walk or, you know, right. unless they have a limp or something, then that would be a interest, uh, irregular meter. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is all, I think everybody has it, right? Like it's, and I think that's maybe what's important about this philosophy too, is it's innate in everybody, music maybe, and then either it's cultivated or not. Right. And I think if anything, we could say that rhythm is innate. I mean, the, because every culture has rhythm, every culture works with a steady beat. Um, and so it, I, I do agree that there is an innate character in here that we have to tap into to make sure that they're successful in, in achieving um, their steady beat. Um, one thing that's different with Dalco's Eurythmics than all of the other approaches that are used is how we approach duration uh, of, of beat. Um, oftentimes it's mixed into the teaching of rhythm. So there's a rhythm pattern on the board and you have to do the, you know, ta, ti, ti, ta, whatever it is that it. Um, however, uh, in Eurythmics, we specifically address the idea of twice as fast, twice as slow twice as slow from that without labeling it. Because I think once you label it and saying that's a quarter note, then they think there's nothing else to learn about it. So they really understand about duration of going twice as fast and twice as slow. And once they get become more successful at this, we can put this on the board and not even name it, but they could figure out which one is twice as fast, twice as slow. And they can start to then read but feel the uh, rhythmic patterns internally uh, before before we're ready to label it. Yes, that's great. And yeah, how many teachers have students who can't hold a long note long enough, right? And so we think long notes are easy because, oh, you know, especially on piano, you just press hold the button down. and wait, yeah. <laughs> but like, no, you didn't give the whole note its full value. It's one, two, three, four. Count. Why can't you count? Right? And it's like, no, wait. If they can feel that duration somehow. Right. And if they did it with their, the, you know, the large body movement, they can take a step and flow through the rest of those beats. So they have that sense of, of, of direction that they're going through that note rather than just step or step and then pulse the beat, you won't have as much success. Um, with uh, younger children, after they've done that, I have them press a note uh, with one hand or the other, but the other has to be the arc of the, of the whole note so that they're doing, in a sense, two things, holding the key down, but then also showing the arc uh, that they're, they're playing. Right, and listening and experiencing it is important too, right? So maybe you as the teacher are playing some beautiful chords on the piano, whole notes, but you're not calling them whole notes, you're just playing, right? And the student or students are moving some way. And maybe they're four beats, but, right, you're not having them count four beats and you're not labeling a whole note, you're just telling them move to the music or, you know, step when you hear the note or whatever it is right and so they're experiencing the whole note and feeling it with the whole body and then that transfers to the piano 
Yeah, I think it's a great, a great um, analogy and a great approach to it. Um, eventually, yes, we do want them to to label it and understand it, but I think that's that comes later rather than saying this is a whole note. A whole note gets four beats. How many beats does a whole note get? Well, then there's how do I say it? It's cognitively learned, but not physically internalized. Right. Exactly. Are there specific age groups? or types of learners who benefit from it? Or is it suitable for a wide range? It really is suitable for a wide range. And, and just after teaching children for so many years, um, there's a, a quick buy-in with younger children because oftentimes they, they learn kinesthetically. And if we think of the modes of learning, of hearing um, or visual learning, kinesthetic learning, oftentimes with a younger child, kinesthetic learning is their strongest suit they learn by doing, by experiencing, by playing. Um, they learn by that part. Um, and then, of course, others, as they, by grade three, they're being able to decode visual things better. And so they're, that is starting to, to kick in. And so it, it kind of changes as they, um, as they mature. Um, but even with my college students, I would ask them to really think about, so what do you think your strongest learning modality is? And um, I would say half the room, now they're musicians, but half the room tend to say they're kinesthetic learners, that uh, hmm. they're, they, they learn by, uh, by doing. So um, I think that uh, the teacher also has to learn, how to say it, to read the room. By the time you get to middle school, they're growing. I mean, there's so many things happening. They're less comfortable with their bodies. There's, you know, there's so many things that are happening. Then there's peer pressure and other things happen. So that's when I start to use a lot more manipulatives. I bring out uh, the racquetballs I was talking about, but I could also have uh, use elastics and neckties and other things that they are focused on on having the tie move or the ball bounce and less about themselves. And then they start to, to how do they get comfortable with the culture that's going on in the room. And that starts to dissipate a little bit by high school. Then in college, uh, freshmen are a little bit un, you know, uncomfortable and they have to then get back into it. Um, so, but always approaching everything you do in the class with a sense of joy. Um, and it feels like a safe environment for them. And it's okay if they mess up and the ball goes somewhere. It, it's all good. So they, they feel that it's it's a, uh, a safe place to learn. Yeah, and I think with adults too. I have a lot of adult students at my studio. And um, periodically we do group classes with all ages. But um, the adults have a group too. And I, I've done some eurythmics activities with them Good. and it's really helpful you know it kind of like it breaks the ice it just socially and then it does you know it sort of loosens them up a lot of times they're they can be very like rigid with rhythm or with their hands you know like tension and all this mm -hmm. and just to get moving you know it's almost like therapy but then it i think it still does help their their rhythm and just their sense of everything 
right? Uh, As an aside, I haven't done it for a few years, but I was often called upon to go to marching band camp to help them on day one. And so this is before they get their instruments, before they're doing it, but they just had to learn how to move and turn and where the anacrusis was and and how to land somewhere. And um, of course, you know, they're excited to be there, but they're nervous as well. But by getting all of that out of the way on the first day, it was also a bonding experience for them. They, because you, you in your rhythms class, you could be working as a full group, but you could be in pairs. You could be in, in groups of fours or fives and doing something. And um, you really do feel like you're sharing music um, in a kinesthetic way. Now, a lot of people think um, in your rhythmics, since it sort of has the word rhythm in it, that it's all about rhythm, but it's really every sort of aspect or concept in music as well. The term eurythmics is coming from the the Greek term where the EU part means good and uh, the EUR part, the rhythm part, really from the Greek side means flow, like a river. And so what we're talking about is the sense of a good flow in in what it is that you do. Um, And that certainly translates to the piano studio because we want people to, yes, they're learning and they're doing things, but we want them to be able to flow through a piece of music um, Mm -hmm. that they're doing, not just get the notes right. Yeah, and could you talk about um, solfege? Yeah, sure. So uh, there is um, there are four little uh, legs on this stool that we're talking about. So the first one is your rhythmics. We just normally mean the, the movement aspect of it. Um, but there's also a pitch aspect. And so this is, is solfege. And in uh, your rhythmics, we call it rhythmic solfege because first off, it's not your uh, college um, oral skills class where you're sitting in a desk and, and you know beating out a rhythm, you are moving through the space as you sing. So there are different ways that you could be moving. You could be moving to keep the tempo of what it is that you're singing, or you could be moving the scale of, uh, of pitch scales as you're doing it. So you could be standing on the pitch do and that you're going to sing a, a do to do scale that you take your first step in place because you're standing on your do and then you're walking whole or half steps forward and backward depending if you're doing in the diatonic scale so do to raise a whole step and re to b is a whole step me to fa is a half step so you take a smaller step uh, and moving with that way so you're discovering pitch as you're as you're moving. Now, it's interesting. I found in, uh, I did all of my elementary teaching in Toronto, and I found that normally by grade two, the children could stand on their dough and they can hear the pitch dough in their head. They can, mm. they can, they use their inner hearing. And I think it's part of the environment. I've never done a study on this, but it's part of what their environment is. And I could say, stand on your dough, point to so, and sing it. So they're able to 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 sing that out. Now I need to put this little caveat on in that I grew up in a, a fixed do country, which means the pitch do C is always do, um, and uh, that also helps to internalize um, pitch and a really good sense of of uh, internal pitch. Um, I moved to the U.S. and discovered that that's not the case. And so most likely, if you went to a university in uh, the U.S., you used a movable dough system where the tonic 
uh, was dough and that moved around. Now, this system can work just as well in a movable dough world. We just don't have to worry about, you know, where, where dough is in the room. Um, but in that case, I could say, you know, find your usual place where you start, you know, so everybody has a place where in the room where they are to do that. And uh, the teacher could play G and say, that's dough. And I want you to walk uh, a dough to dough scale in G. And I'd be I'd be horrible at it because I can't I can't hear um, G is dough, but that's okay. I mean, I think if really depending on how you're you're training the children to do it, but it also teaches them sight reading skills that they're sight singing and moving at the same time, and that forces them to look ahead. I'm sure some piano uh, studio instructors find that the students are playing the note they see and not looking ahead to what the next you know pitch or key is. So we. Um, we, uh, in a solfege class, they're forced to look ahead because they're moving in those directions. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. I, I'll, I want to tell you a, a game I did the other day. So we did sort of what you were talking about with stepping scale. Then I had these sort of markers on the floor um, with like the flat hula hoops and the students, that was their dough. And then I improvised a little tune on the piano and when they heard dun, 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 they had to get to their spot by the time i got to do right and so we, we went from they were singing it to now they're hearing it and they and once they hear the dun, 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 uh oh now they gotta find the their spot right and then of course i would sort of um trick them a little bit I might be playing a little tune, um, right? And they're waiting for that. And then I go, right? And so they think it's coming and then, oh. And so it's, you know, that whole game aspect. Right, and they'll laugh. They'll just think that there was a great thing that when you're doing it. So it just makes it such an enjoyable term experience as they are internalizing pitch. Yeah. Okay, so you said Eurythmics and then Rhythmic Solfege, and what else? So the third stool is improvisation. Mm -hmm. um, so when younger children start this, they are improvising with their bodies. Then they could be improvising on a hand drum. There's many ways they can do it. But eventually we want them to be improvising on their instrument. Now, I'm unfamiliar with um, contemporary um, piano pedagogy books, um, but I remember seeing some that used improvisation as part of the learning experience. Um, but it's a big part uh, of this. Yes, you do learn how to, to sight read and play, but we also want you to be uh, able to improvise. And the jazz world does not have the lock-in on, on the term improvisation. You could be improvising in many, many different styles. For me as a dance musician, you know, I could improvise in, um, you know, the style of a Bartok or, or something like that. Um, Susan Chess, you mentioned earlier, uh, is a dance musician at Ohio State, and she can just improvise in any style you ask for, in the style of Bach, in the style of Mozart, in the style of Duke Ellington. I mean, she just can, you know, do all that. So improvisation is a big uh, part of uh, of the experience. And you can improvise in pairs, you can improvise as a small ensemble. Um, and 
there's a lot of shared experience in improvisation. Right. And it's improvisation or improvising your voice too, singing, right. even if, even if your main instrument is piano, right? Mm -hmm. Start with, start with your own body. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Start with that. And oftentimes they feel comfortable in improvising something in their body. If they're voice majors, there's a little bit of apprehension in improvising with your voice because it's your instrument. And so there's a little bit of trepidation until you get past that. And then they start to feel that they that they can they can do it. Uh, and the safest way to for voice people is to improvise while moving. Right. Yeah. And of course, as the teacher, you are probably going to be improvising on a drum, on the piano as well, right? So it's not just that you're teaching that, but you're improvising at the piano while you're leading an activity. Right, right, I do. And so it's one of those things when you're improvising, you've got to keep your eyes away from the keyboard and watch the class because you are certainly you're being assessing what's happening in in the group but you're also looking to see um what you were doing is affecting their group what would happen if i speed up a little bit what would happen if i slow down um how do they how do the um, musicians react in the room right and uh just to let teachers know who are listening i did an episode on improvisation um, so, you know, don't be afraid and think, oh gosh, I don't know if I can improvise, but it can, it can just be very simple. So, you know, watch that episode, but yeah, it could even just be one handed. You could play a black key melody and, you know, just keeping a steady beat and adjusting the speed while you watch the class. Yeah. Okay. So that was number three, improvisation. The last one is because it's called plastique anime, and it sounds like a big fancy French term, but it really is embodying this into a piece of music. So I always tell the students, you are the music, your body is the instrument. So I could put on a piece of music and they are having to pick out the elements in the music that they hear or they think is important and show it in their bodies. It's not a performance. It's more of maybe like an informance where some of half the class could be watching what some of the groups are doing and what they hear and they see that it's different from what they would do. So it's certainly not choreography. They could come back to it and hear something different in the piece the, uh, the next time. Um, but it's interesting when I taught elementary school, if we were doing a plastic activity and moving around the room, if the principal or headmaster came into the classroom while this was going on, that person would think that this was a choreographed piece because they could mm. all be landing on, you know, a, a crucis somewhere that's really important to them, um, but not, re not realizing that each of them are improvising what they hear in in the music well let's tell teachers where they can find out more right um the american rhythmic society has a website that their uh, half of it is available for um you know folks who aren't members who can just go and look at it and one of the, them is the events page so if you go to the events page and scroll down you could find out is there like a chapter or something that i could attend is there a one day uh, event. Um, so oftentimes people ask me if they'd like to attend a one week event, um, where could they look? And so if they look on the events page, they can do that. 
and the website, you have to type it all out, AmericanEurythmics.org. And so that Eurythmics is E-U-R-H-Y-T-H-M-I-C-S. AmericanEurythmics.org, go to the events page and you can then um, find out what's happening. So for example, we have our national conference in the second weekend of October uh, and it moves around the country. Um, it was in Columbus ooh, maybe eight years ago. And so it is coming back to Columbus, Ohio uh, for the second weekend of October. And uh, then it will be in location. Last year it was in Texas, I believe. Um, I believe Colorado would like to host it. So it'll be moving, uh, moving around. Um, so that is something where people come in from all over the country to, to attend. And there are, I don't know, seven master teaching artists who are doing a session in anything like uh, rhythmic solfege or movement or improvisation. So you really do get to um, see a wide variety of teaching uh, that you can, um, can experience. Yeah, and I'll put the link in the description and show notes for everybody. Oh, thank so they, you. So they can just click it. But yeah, I definitely encourage teachers to, you know, try to attend something. It's definitely something that you you have to experience it to really know what it is. Um, not just listening to us talk about it, even though I'm sure we were completely engaging. But, um, right, you really have to experience it. And like I said, that was my first, you know, introduction to it was experiencing it and being totally blown away. And I've done all kinds of training and workshop and it just doesn't get old. Um, one of the main reasons it doesn't get old is because like you said david each teacher sort of does it their own way or puts has their own flavor to it even though it's the same underlying philosophy right so right and, we, and they create their own activities and games and so there's always something new that's that's there to do it um i listened to your first podcast i remember you talking about the importance of going to conferences and i think that that would be just a great um opportunity to to present um at a national conference because it's just a one or two hour thing that it can pique somebody's interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, tell everybody about your book. The full title is Meaningful Movement, A Music Teacher's Guide to Del Crozier Rhythmics. And we say music teacher because it's also including the studio uh, teacher on that. Came out in 2016 and it has 207 lessons as well as 35 videos of children and college-age students who are doing some of the activities. Um, and sometimes, you know, you look at a lesson, you're going through it and think, well, how does that really work? And if, if it's complicated like that, then you can see the, um, see the uh, children doing it, the activity. Um, then in 2022, 21, sorry, uh, we came out with a choral book and that is Delco's Eurythmics in the Choral Classroom. And this was done with my uh, teaching partner, Marla Butke, and she and I do a lot of teaching around the country uh, together. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one because I don't really teach choral right. classrooms. But yes, that the Meaningful Movement one, oh my gosh, I, it's so great. Thank you so much for doing that. It's such a helpful resource because um, you can read all these books about rhythmics and everything, but to have actual activities spelled out and it's... It's really well organized and indexed, and it, it has you know lists of pieces you can play or how to improvise for those activities. And the videos, 
-hmm. because yeah sometimes once you see it you're like oh okay yeah that makes sense right instead right. of trying to and then read. after a while you can look at some lesson plans without having to see the videos because you already then then uh, get it so there are movement things there are solfege activities improvisation activities and even suggestions for plastique anime that uh, they can they can they can do that um the best place to find that book would be through west music uh that's westmusic.com Great. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for talking with us. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about Eurythmics or? I think we've covered a lot. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you might have future episodes on it and, you know, perhaps I can set the uh, computer up at the piano and we can go through some sort of activities and ideas to, uh, you know, for um, uh, inspiring movement. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Well, thanks again, David. And to everyone, hope you have a great day. This has been The Piano Sensei Way. Take care.